more often. Have you ever thought about that? That the scriptures teach us that we have been given divine access as his children, as the children of God. We have been given divine access to his throne. And not only have we been given access to his throne, he does not want us to come to him occasionally. Rather, he wants us to come to him continually, beckoning us to come, pleading with us to come. That we don't have a, a dad in heaven, a father in heaven that is annoyed by us. So why don't we pray more? I think one of the primary reasons perhaps we don't pray is our own human arrogance. That our first reflex when we're in struggle, our first reflex when we remember our weakness, our first reflex when we're faced with a difficulty in life is not to seek the help of God. Rather, it is to look deeper within ourselves. It is to try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. It is to try to, to try to muster up some kind of fake courage to convince ourselves that we're capable. To convince ourselves that we can do it when the truth is we know we can't. But the truth is, is by our actions, the decisions that we make, the steps that we take, when we, when we come to these moments in our lives, by being our first reflex, essentially what we say is, God, I've got this. God, I don't need you. I'll figure this out. Perhaps another reason that we don't pray is that we underestimate the power of God. Perhaps we not only estimate the power of God, but we underestimate the love and the concern of God. Perhaps we would never say it out loud, but we would think even this is beyond God's help. Even this is beyond what he could fix. Even this is beyond something that he might intervene into. Or, I'm so small, why would he care about me anyway? I'm so insignificant, I'm so this age, so young, so old, I'm so poor, I'm so uninfluential. That God wouldn't be concerned for me, or, or God wouldn't even be capable if he were. Perhaps the reason we don't pray is disbelief in our lives. Perhaps if we truly believe that God would answer us, perhaps if we believe that God truly would intervene into our lives, perhaps if we believe that he really, really would respond to us in a way by taking divine action into our lives, perhaps if we truly believe that, then we would pray. But though all of us would say that we believe that prayer works, I think our own prayerlessness tells the story that we believe it probably doesn't. So this morning, why don't we pray? Why don't you pray? <clears throat> why is prayer more of a duty than a delight? Why is it more of an obligation than a joy? As we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're coming this evening to the, or this morning to the final kind of part of the, the body of the sermon, or the, the, the primary part of the discourse. And we're, we talked about last week how in chapter 7 there's this shift to talking about relationships. And, and last week we kind of talked about uh, our relationships with one another. And this week we're going to primarily talk about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn them to Matthew chapter 7 and stand with me today. We will begin this morning in verse 7 and read through verse 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. 
Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. So as we come to the end, and this is kind of the, I told you, this morning's passage is kind of the, the, the book end to the, to the meat of the sermon. Starting next week, we're going to kind of go into the landing point of the sermon, or the conclusion of the sermon. So why would Jesus land it? Why would Jesus kind of draw this part of the sermon to an end this way? Well, I think if we think about it, it actually makes a whole lot of sense. Throughout the whole sermon, as we've talked about frequently, Jesus has been calling us to a radical life. Jesus has been calling his disciples to an extreme life. Jesus has been calling his disciples to a difficult life. He has called them to, to have a righteousness that is greater than that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, in fact, made themselves miserable trying to be righteous. So how can we do that? He has called us to, to live a life that is countercultural, against the flow, loving our enemies and turning the other cheek. How can we do that? He's called us to not judge one another, to take lust seriously, to, to live above the standard of divorce set by this world. How can we do this? How can we do this as we press forward? And as we press forward, the world is continually pressing back on us. And so as small as we are and as weak as we are, how can we possibly believe that we're going to be able to do this? How can we possibly believe that we're going to be able to live up to the standards that we find in the Sermon on the Mount? And I think that's where we come to this morning. I think that's what Jesus is wanting to resolve in the hearts of his disciples. Is here's, what, here's what I believe that Jesus is saying. Yeah, guys, this is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult. There's going to be, there's going to be suffering, and you have the responsibility to rejoice in that suffering. There's going to be hurting, and yet in that hurt, you're going to plow through that. You're going to plow through that with the joy of the Lord. Yeah, they're, they're going to come after you and you're going to pray for them. They're going to come after you and you're going to turn the other cheek. But, but my dear disciples, don't look deeper within yourself. Don't, don't try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't try to muster up some kind of faux courage so that you can charge into hell. No, don't look into yourself. Look beyond yourself. Look to the Father that loves you. Look to the Father that has redeemed you. Look to the Father that has pursued you. Look to the Father that spoke and, and created the universe. Look to the Father that, that owns the solar system. Look to Him. Look to Him. Ask Him to help you. Seek His help. Knock so that you might go in and fellowship with Him and live with Him. Because though you are weak, He is strong. Though you will crumble, He never will. Though you are insecure, you are always secure in his grip. So seek him. Seek power from him. Seek the empowerment of the God, of the Father, of the Spirit, through the Father, to live this life. Now, he says, and he gives us these, these very clear imperatives. And I love, I love these parts of the Sermon on the Mount because they're just so clear and they're so next to impossible for us to mess up. He says in verse 7, it's so simple, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. But I think the way we should, what we should be sure to notice is we should be no, sure to notice that these are in the present tense. Ask, seek, 
knock. And so I don't think it would be unfair for us to translate these exactly the way the, the Holman Christian uh, Bible translates them or the uh, New, uh, New Living Translation translates them by saying, keep asking, keep knock, keep seeking, keep knocking. That there's this, this persistence that's supposed to be there, that we're supposed to, to persist in our asking, persist in our seeking, persist in our knocking. In other words, that w- there should be a relentlessness to our prayer life. There should be a relentlessness to us seeking God. That we're not just to seek Him today, on Sunday, in church. We're to go home and seek Him. We're to wake up tomorrow and seek Him. We're to wake up on Tuesday and knock. We're to wake up on Wednesday and ask. We're to wake up seeking fellowship with him always. Seeking help from him always. We are to persist in this. I think that brings to mind the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable and it's kind of a funny parable. It's this little old lady that essentially goes and and nags this judge and nags this judge and nags this judge saying, would you rule in my favor? Would you rule in my favor? And this judge who really doesn't care, this judge who is indifferent to the lady, this judge that is indifferent to the law of God says, listen woman, you have annoyed me to the point that look, I will do anything just to get you to leave me alone. So yes, I will rule in your favor, go away, you old nag. Some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've been where that judge has been before. And Jesus' point there is so clear. Jesus' point is, is if a woman can nag an unjust judge, a wicked judge, and be ruled in her favor, how much more can the children of God persist in their prayers to him and him respond to them? That your father loves you much more than this unjust judge. So persist in your prayer. If it works with the judge, how much more so will it work with the father? How much more so will you find joy with him? Now, if I'm being honest with you, this has always been a struggle for me to understand. This has always been a struggle for me to understand because I have a very high opinion of the sovereignty of God. And so I believe that God existing outside of time is still in yesterday, is already is here right now and is already in tomorrow. That, that none of what we do is going to catch him off guard. That he kind of knows what's coming before it comes. And so it has always perplexed me as to why we must persist in our prayers. Why do we have to pray? If God already knows our need, and he does, and if God already knows our wants, and he does, why is it that we must persist in our prayers? Is it because God has got some kind of divine dementia? You know, he's pretty old. So is God up in heaven looking for the keys and trying to remember where he parked, and you can't really remember what I'm struggling with? I don't think so. And what I've been able to kind of resolve in my own spirit is the reason that we are to persist in our prayers is not so that we might help God. It's so that we ourselves might be helped. It's so that we ourselves, so it's something about pursuing the Lord in prayer and seeking the Lord in prayer and, and asking the Lord in prayer that doesn't change the heart of God. God's heart is, is always good. God's heart is always merciful. God's heart is always gracious. It's so that our hearts might be changed. So that we might be transformed. You see, persistence in prayer teaches us a couple things. First of all, persistence in prayer demonstrates a steady faith, doesn't it? Persistence in prayer demonstrates a steady faith. 
If we go to the Lord and day after day after day ask for his intervention. And we go to the Lord day after day after day seeking him that we might know him better. And we go to the Lord day after day after day knocking that we might go in and fellowship with him. Experiencing his divine hospitality. If we do this day after day after day continually, relentlessly, guess what's going to happen? Your faith is going to be strengthened. Your faith is going to be strengthened because you're going to have a relationship with him. Your relationship is going to be deeper than just this once a week kind of thing. It's going to go deep with him. And at the same time, it's actually an act of worship because over and over and over you're saying, God, I trust you. God, I want you. God, I love you. And so every time you go to him, you're showing your pursuit of him. You're showing that he is the chief desire of your life. Everybody that's ever dated a woman knows what this is about, right? How do you express desire? You express desire by wanting to talk with them, right? You express desire by wanting them to know your heart. You express desire by wanting them to know the way that you think and the way that you see the world and the the struggles that you have. You, You express desire, you express intimacy by being vulnerable, right? And I think that's the other part of persisting in prayer. Is that prayer is... The mechanism. Prayer is the divine means by which we express our desire for God to him. It's when we go to him and we say, God, I want you. And so I'm going to come to you day after day after day. Moment after moment after moment. Second after second after second. I'm going to come after you. I'm going to to ask you. I'm going to knock. I'm going to seek you because I want to be vulnerable to you. I want to be real to you. I want to make sure that I'm pouring out my heart to you because, God, I desire you more than anything else. What about you? Pause for a moment. If it's your prayer life that demonstrates your desire, if it's the persistence of your prayer life that it demonstrates the level of your faith, how deep is your faith? How strong is your desire? Is it a few minutes before you doze off to sleep? Is it throughout the day? Is it set aside time in the mornings and then again throughout the day? It says something about your faith. It says something about your desire. And what's fascinating to me about this is how open-ended verses 7 and 8 are. And I I think, honestly, a lot of Christians are quite nervous, especially the more conservative Christians like us, would be quite nervous with this passage. And and probably rightfully so, because this is so open-ended. Listen to what he says. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find, knock, and it will be open. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and, the one, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. And what we see in there is there's, there's really two conditions. One of them is stated, one of them is implied. The implied condition for all of this working is that, first of all, you're one of his children. He's talking to his children. He's talking to his disciples. And we see that throughout with the, with the father language and the, the father-son language as the parable goes on uh, in verses, uh, starting in verses uh, 9 through 11. So first of all, he's only talking to his children. You must, for this to be true, for this, for this reality to, to be possible in your life, you must be uh, one of the children of God. You must have placed your faith in him, repented of your sin, and trusted in Christ for salvation. That's the only way. The other condition is stated. How is it that he will answer you? 
if you ask, if you seek, if you knock. The other condition is, is that you actually ask. But that's pretty much all it says, isn't it? Now, I think he's going to bring greater clarity in verse 11. We're going to spend some time talking about that in a minute. But he leaves us so open-ended by just saying, if you'll just come and ask me. If, you, if you'll just come and, and seek me. If you'll just come and, and knock, I'll invite you in. We'll, we'll fellowship with one another. I, I, will, I will bless you. I will let you know me. I will let you find me as you seek me. Now, where this makes us nervous is because this has been twisted by some of um, the folks that preach the prosperity gospel, some of the heretics that preach the prosperity gospel, where they say, look, you can name it and you can claim it. Look, you, whatever you want to do, you just come and say, hey, Jesus, I want Mercedes, bring it. Right? And it's so open-ended that, we're, that, they, that they, they fail to read it in context, but that makes us nervous. And so we have a tendency to kind of back away from that and say, well, I'm not going to ask for anything. I don't want to ask for a Mercedes, and I don't ask, I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm going to back away because we've seen how that kind of gets messed up. But I think Jesus leaves it open-ended purposefully. I think Jesus leaves it open-ended because he wants to teach his disciples, and he wants to teach us as his disciples in the 21st century to explore the extent of the generosity of God. There is no one else. In this life, in the next life, in any generation that's came before us, in any generation that will come after us, regardless of how wealthy, whether it be Solomon or it be Bill Gates, there is no one that you can ask for utterly anything and them not hesitate for even a second to give it to you. Except for the Father. Except for the Father. Do you have a material need? He owns the solar system, y'all. He owns this one, and he owns the ones we, we too small and too dumb to ever even be able to see. He owns all of them. Like, we have this one big sun thing that we kind of revolve around. Have you ever looked up in the sky just to see how many suns are up there? Guess who owns them? Your father owns them. Your dad owns, he owns the lot, okay? Like, you get to go and pick out any car because he owns the lot, right? He owns all of the galaxies, all of the universes. He spoke and did it all owns them all the people here who kind of think they're a big deal some of you that kind of think you're a big deal he owns you okay he owns them even if they don't want to acknowledge it even if they refuse he owns them he owns all of this the gold here we got a war over gold god paves his streets with it you walk with your bare feet on gold up there there is nothing that you can ask for there is nothing that you can need that he can't give to you. That he can't provide for you in an instant. Because your father is not only immeasurably wealthy. Your father is not only immeasurably wealthy and wanting to bless you. Your father is neither greedy nor stingy. He's willing. As a matter of fact, I think throughout the, the, the Bible, what, from from Genesis to Revelation, what we see pictured there is the remarkable, immeasurable generosity of God. That he is willing to give us not just what he promised, but more than he promises. God will never give us less, but he will almost always give us more because we serve a God of excess. But I think it's deeper than that. Not only can he materially meet any need or give any want if he so chooses... But if you were to go to Bill Gates, worth like $80 billion, I think now, 
and you were to go with him with an issue of the heart, and you were to go with him with an issue of the soul, it doesn't matter if he gave you the whole 80 billion. It doesn't matter if he gave you every dollar he's ever earned and every dollar he ever will earn. He can't fix that. He can't help you with your sin. He can't help you with your depression. He can't help you with your broken heart. He can't help you with your loneliness. He can't help you with your mourning. He can write you checks, but he can't fix your heart. But guess what? The generosity of the Father encompasses all of that. The gifts of the Father transcends the heart, transcends the soul. He cannot just give you everything materially. He can give you everything spiritually. He can do all of it. And he is willing, Jesus says, if you will ask him, if you will seek him, if you will plead with him. John Piper says it like this. When you pause to consider that God is infinitely strong and can do all that he pleases, and that he is infinitely righteous so that he only does what is right, and that he is infinitely good so that everything he does is perfectly good, and that he is infinitely wise so that he always knows perfectly what is right and good, and that he is infinitely loving so that in all his strength and righteousness and goodness and wisdom he raises the eternal joy of his loved ones as high as it can be raised. When you pause to consider this, then the lavish invitations of this God to ask him for good things with the promise that he will give them is unimaginably wonderful. Let me just ask you, in your heart, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe what he, asked, what he says here? Do you believe that you can take this promise to the bank? Do you believe that God is pleading with you to come and to, sh to, to search the extent of his generosity toward his children? Because brothers and sisters, our God loves to bless his children through the answering of their prayers. He loves it. And maybe this morning, you're thinking, not me though. Not me. I'm not some great man of faith. I'm not some great woman of faith. There's nothing particularly special about me. Not me. Maybe Billy Graham. Maybe, maybe God answers Billy Graham this way, but not me. Maybe God answers, answered Martin Luther this way, but not me. Maybe God answers John Piper that way, but, but not me. I, I'm, just, I'm just a nobody, kind of living in obscurity. Not me. Notice what he says. Verse 8. For whom? For whom? Everyone. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. We can take all of those ones and put the word everyone, and it's the same thing. For everyone who asks, receives, for everyone who seeks, finds, for everyone who knocks, it will be open. You are his beloved. You are in the household of God, and God did not pay a smaller price for your salvation and your adoption than he did for Billy Graham's adoption, or for John Piper's adoption, or for Martin Luther's adoption. There is no favoritism in the house of God. He, looks, he loves all of his children and wants to bless them. Everyone. You. You. You living in Rabbit Town, you living in Nancy's Creek, you living in Chocolock, and God loves you. Loves you. Wants you. Wants to bless you. Wants you to explore his generosity. Wants you. Now when we get to verses 9 through 11, Jesus begins to tell 
a parable to kind of help us wrap our minds around what he's saying. He tells us this parable to kind of go, kind of go deeper. And I think, I think the language of the parable is very helpful for us to kind of understand better in context what he said in verses 7 through 8. So let's read it again together, verses 9 through 11. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And and I think this family language is so important. This father language is so important. Because what we have here is not a comparison of two fathers. We have a, a contrasting of two fathers, right? He says, all right, so you're an earthly dad and you are evil. By the way, I think we have here Jesus affirming total depravity. As Genesis 8 teaches us, you are evil from your youth. So Jesus here is saying, you who are evil, you who are wicked, even you like to give good gifts to your dad, or to your children. Even, even you like to be blessings to your daughter. Even you like to be blessings to your son. Even you are capable of this kind of instinctive love. Well, if you who are evil can do this, imagine God who's infinitely good, God who's infinitely generous, God who is infinitely gracious and infinitely merciful. Imagine if you're capable of giving good gifts to your children, imagine how much more so, in contrast, someone that's good, really good, righteous, could give. And the father language, I think, is significant because it's important for us to remember that God is a father and not a genie. God is a father, not a genie. See, I think if you read a lot of the modern prayer books, or if you, you listen to a lot of the sermons on modern prayer, what you'll hear is, is that you need to assume a certain posture, or you need to, you need to go and you need to pray in a, with a certain formula. You need to have your, your prayer formula right, your prayer superstitions in order, and if you'll get the order right, if you'll get the formula right, then you'll get everything that you're really asking for. You'll get exactly what it is that you're looking for. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like rubbing Aladdin's lamp. So that the genie might come up and give you everything that you want. And that's how many of us approach God in prayer. We approach God in prayer as though he is our, our divine genie up in the sky that is just there just to give us whatever it is that we want. But a father cannot be like a genie. No. A father is constrained in a way that a genie isn't. A father is constrained by his love for his children. And so there are times in which a father must say no, because, not because he doesn't love his children, but because he so deeply does love his children. There are times that he must keep things from his children so that his children would be okay. There are times in which they will want things in which he should not give to them because a father differs from a genie in that a father actually cares what happens to his children. He cares about how you end up. He cares about where you go in your life. He cares about the man or the woman that you become. And so because a father is constrained by love in this way, he is unwilling, if he loves his children, to give them what they don't need. And so to go with our parable, a father would not even give a serpent to his son if his son asked for a serpent. And our heavenly father is that way. Our Heavenly Father loves us too much to give us that which is not good for us. Our Father loves us too much to give us that which will be harmful for us. Even if we want it badly. Even if we ask Him for it persistently. If it's not what's best for us. If it's not what's best for His glory. He will refuse because our Father is constrained by His love for us. And that's what it says essentially, right? 
he talks in verse 11. He says, your father who is in heaven give good things. He gives good things. He doesn't give all things, right? He doesn't give all things to those who ask. He gives good things to those who ask. Now earlier we talked about the two conditions that we, we found earlier in our text in verse 8. I think here we see a third condition. All right, so first you have to be a child of God to, to live in this reality of prayer. Secondly, you have to actually ask him. You have to actually seek him. You have to actually knock so that, so that he might respond to you. But thirdly, I think what we see is this. If the Father can only give good things, if the Father is only capable of giving good things and only willing to give good things, then for you to ask and receive, you must ask for good things. So uh, I think a helpful way for us to think about this would be ask for good things and it will be given to you. Knock, seeking good things, and he will open it for you. Seek the good things of the Father, and he will open it. Because the Father can only give you what is good, and is only willing to give you that is good. He will not give you a serpent, even if you ask for a serpent. He will not give you what will lead to your own demise and your own destruction, even if you want it more than anything else in the world. And all of you that have been parents have had to make those calls before, right? And you know that comes from deep-seated love. So I think the question of the moment here then is, is what are good things? What are good things that we can ask for them so that when we, we go to the Father, he will give them to us so that we, we know to ask him for these things. I think, first of all, these things can include our wants, even, even our material wants. But I think there's a way that we need to think about that. I think when the Bible is clear that just like in the text we read this morning from James, when we, when we need healing, it is, it is perfectly legitimate and even scriptural for us to go and to ask the Lord that he bring us healing. If we would lack a new job, I believe that the Lord cares about our daily needs and our daily lives. And I don't think it is unbiblical or unwise for us to go and ask the Lord for a new job. If we feel like we need a raise, ask the Lord for a raise. But when we bring our wants before the Lord, I think we have to bring the, our wants to the Lord as being in submission to a greater want. To being in, a, in submission or being subservient to a greater desire. In other words, here, here's how I think we bring our wants to the Lord. Lord, I would love a new job. Lord, I even feel like I need a new job. Lord, would you bring me a new job? But God, only if, only if it is your will, only if it will bring you glory. Because my greater want, more than I want a new job, more than I want a raise, more than I want a house, my greater desire is to be in your will, to be the man that you desire for me to be, and to bring you glory with my life. And so, Father, I want this, but more than that, I have a greater want. I want your glory to reign supreme in my life. I want you to be worshipped and honored through me. And so, so bring all of these things and essentially pray, God, if what I'm praying is not your will, if what I'm asking for is not going to bring you glory, please say no to me. Please say no to me. Jesus models this type of prayer for us in the garden. In the garden, what do we hear Jesus pray? Jesus is fixing to, to face the torment of the cross. It's going to be physical torment. It's going to be spiritual separation from God. He's going to have the very wrath of God poured out over him. And what does Jesus pray? Jesus prays for his wants, doesn't he? God, if there, Father, if there is any way, would you let this cup pass from me? Father, in other words, I don't want to face this. Father, I, I don't want to face the cross. Father, I don't want to be separated from you. Father, I would prefer not experience your unfiltered wrath poured over me. Father, if there is another way. But Father... Not my will, but your will be done. 
In other words, there's a greater want in my life. There's a greater want, more than not going to the cross, more than not facing the suffering, more than not facing the torment, more than all of that, I want to obey you, more than all of that, I want to bring you glory, more than that, I have a supreme desire in my life, and the supreme desire of my life is to be in your will. So please, Father, if there is no other way, tell me no, so that I might bring you glory, so that I might obey your will. Is that how you pray? Is that how you pray? Father, I want to be healed, but only if it brings you glory. Father, I want you to bless my family, but only in a way that brings you glory. Father, I want you to give generously to me, but only in a way that brings you glory, because that is the chief want of my life. But I think much deeper than material things, much deeper than temporary things, I think the primary thing in view here is to ask God for those things that only God can give. To ask God for those things that cannot be obtained through human effort or human ingenuity. To ask God for those things that won't just be, make things better for a few minutes, but will, re- will, will reign with him forever in eternity. Those eternal things, those redemptive gifts, those fruits of the Spirit. In other words, I think before we go and ask the Lord for a raise, perhaps we should ask the Lord for contentment and patience. Before we go and ask the Lord for a new car, we should ask him for joy. After all, brothers and sisters, what is more difficult? What can be obta- one can be obtained through hard work and, and going to work every day and saving up your money. The other can only be given to you by the Lord. The only can, other can only be given to you through his generosity. One of them will, will melt away with this life. The other will last forever. So my challenge to you would be don't cheapen your prayers with only things that are temporary. Don't cheapen your prayers with only asking for things, only seeking things, only knocking so that you might have things that will melt away as this earth melts away, dissipate as the vapor of this life dissipates. No, seek the Lord asking for those gifts of redemption. Seek the Lord asking for those fruits of the Spirit so that you might live a Spirit-filled life, a merciful life, a generous life, a godly life that will be an investment in forever so that you can enjoy Him forever, bringing Him glory and honor with your life. And I'll tell you how significant I think this is. I wonder, and, and I believe, that perhaps the church has damaged the reputation of God by the way that we pray. You go on Facebook and you see the prayers, and it's always, I'm praying for healing. And the world sees that, and they see that even if we get better for a little while, we die just like they die. We go and we say, Lord, I'm, I, I want a new raise, and the, or I want, I'd like more money. And the world sees, well, I make more money than you already, just by hard work, just by going, just by knowing the ways of the world. And so they're better off than us anyway. Lord, I want a new car, I want a new home. And the world sees us, and they're living in a nicer home and driving in a nicer car. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if the way that we're praying is not teaching the world that they have no need for God at all. What if we prayed for those things that the world can't have? What if we prayed for those things that would transform us inwardly, transform us inside out, so that we might live in this world as salt and as light, as Jesus has said in the beginning? 
What if we prayed that we would have radical contentment? Imagine us living and and permeating our community and permeating social media and permeating the workplace with radical commitment. Might they look at that and say, I don't have that. Might we pray for joy and be filled with a joy that can endure through the valleys of life, a a joy that cannot uh, be taken from us or robbed from us through the loss of a job or low income. Might they see our joy and say, I have all of this, but I don't have that. Might we pray in a way that would set us aside from the world? Might we pray in a way that would allow us to have things that aren't merely temporary and aren't merely material? Might that transcend our prayers? I believe the fundamental purpose of prayer is to not get what we don't have here, but rather to get that which only God can give us in the first place. Is that the heart of your prayers? So Jesus lands... In verse 12, as he concludes this part of his sermon, with what we call the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And I think this is what he's saying. Live your life in such a way that the world around you will catch a glimpse of God's generosity toward you by the way that you are generous towards them. That you live, anticipate their needs, anticipate their wants, and you go and meet them the same way that God has already known your needs and your wants and met them. That you take them joy, that you take them contentment, that you take them even the very practical things so that they might lift high the name of Jesus also. They might be drawn to the Father. I can't tell you enough that if we are going to have any impact in our community, If we're going to have any impact on this world, if we're going to bring anybody at all to Christ, what matters is is how we live among them. How we live among them. How we pray among them. Are you salt and light? Are you living a life that cannot be lived by your own power? Are you living a life that is set aside? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father,